1: This is Cresta in the Afternoon.
2: Hello. It is great to be with you. I am Pat Odie-Murray, and I am substituting today for Al Cresta, who is on the Good News Marriage Cruise. Um, so I'm sure he's having a great time. You'll hear all about it next week uh, when he rejoins the show. It is a pleasure to be here. Um, a little bit about myself. I am an adjunct professor at Lord's University in Christian ethics and in bioethics. Love teaching. Um, it's it's just a wonderful, um, a wonderful situation for me. And I also host a weekly radio show for Annunciation Radio in Toledo, Ohio called The Virtuous Life. It's an hour show, and it airs every Monday. So, that gives you a little bit of information about me, and like I said, I'm excited to be here today. It's a different format for me. I usually go an hour with one guest, so this is going to be moving quickly, um, but a lot of good stuff. And the people here at Ave Maria have been wonderful to me, helping me uh, through this, uh, holding my hand, making sure I know which clock to look and what to do so i can't thank them enough so today um, stay with us we're going to have um, with us a, a higher a new approach to higher ed um is going to be on at the four o'clock hour 420 um james day is going to be with us and he's going to be talking about planting an olive tree for peace uh, so that'll get us started in the show so listen now as we move into the news
3: Thank you, Pat, and good afternoon, everyone. This is your Ave Maria Radio News for Wednesday, January 31st. It's the Feast of St. John Bosco. And today's news is brought to you by Visiting Angels, providing loving care and assistance for seniors in need at visitingangels.com. The French National Assembly has voted to introduce a right to abortion into the French Constitution. The bill received 493 votes of support, with only 30 against, and none of the major political parties in France have spoken out against it. The French Senate will vote on the proposal next month. Pope Francis has revealed his monthly prayer intention. The Pope is inviting others to pray for the terminally ill and their families throughout February. Francis says every sick person has the right to spiritual assistance. He added the families dealing with terminal illness should not be left alone in difficult times. A prisoner exchange between Russia and Ukraine is underway more than 200 Ukrainian service members were returned in exchange for 195 Russian soldiers, according to officials from both countries. It was the first swap since the fatal Russian military plane crash that the nation said was carrying 65 captured Ukrainian soldiers. The Federal Reserve is holding interest rates steady as consumer confidence improves and inflation slows. Fed Chair Jerome Powell told reporters, However, the central bank needs to see more evidence inflation is easing before cutting back rates. He said inflation is still too high and the path forward is uncertain. The Fed is aiming to bring inflation down to 2%. The Fed will meet again in March. And a seemingly innocent question on a Muffet character's social media account is turning into an emotional support group. The ex-account for Elmo wrote on Monday, Just checking in. How is everybody doing? Thousands of followers shared their feelings of depression and anxiety, including many who had just lost their jobs. From the AveMariaRadio.net news desk, I'm Dan McGraw.
2: Well, welcome back. Uh, We are in the first segment of our show here and I'm really excited. I came across uh, this article talking about a new college called College of St. Joseph the Worker. And it has kind of a new approach to higher ed. And so being in higher ed myself, I was very curious uh, to hear more about this school. So we're really excited. We have with us the president of the college, Mike Sullivan. Mike, welcome. How are you today?
4: Hi, Pat. Thanks so much for having me. I'm oh, doing very well.
2: Thanks. That's okay. I want to tell people a little bit about you. Not only are you the president, but you've directed multiple apostolates, including Emmaus Road Publishing, you hold a master's degree in theology, and you and your wife have a small farm where you're raising yeah. animals, vegetables, and your 11 children. That's so wonderful.
4: Yeah, thank you very much. Yeah, We're very blessed, and I've had some great experiences with the city. Well,
2: Mike, tell us a little bit about this school. Now, is it currently open, or are you still enrolling?
4: Uh, We're still enrolling. Our inaugural year is, uh, well, this fall of 24. Okay. will be our first class. We we are open because, you know, this doesn't happen by itself. (laughs) (laughs)
5: That's true, yeah, yeah. And
4: we're we're working very hard. We've actually had a lot of classes this year, but they're non-degree credit classes. You know, they're... um, carpentry classes and framing and things like that so
2: okay uh, we've
4: been we've been offering those just as a one or two week class for students to come in from around the country and just uh, get going on it you know that's amazing
2: yeah so uh, tell us tell us what this concept is because a lot of people this may be new to them
4: oh absolutely yeah so this is a new idea actually it's it's an old idea but it has been (laughs) forgotten for many years yes so uh, this is really a medieval idea the idea of having um, you know, the students or apprentices going from the chapel to the library to the workplace, you know, mm. to the to the workshop. Right. And so um we've kind of forgotten about that. And our culture is uh is really kind of negative and down on the trades. Mm. Um and so uh you know the the important thing to remember there is that the pagan world was very um down on the trades, they were very uh you know they thought basically it was the lowly people who should be working in the trades right and uh and Christ came to the to the earth and uh you know as we we say here the the word became flesh and picked up a hammer for thirty <laughs> years he worked in his in a carpenter's shop, and so the trades can't be all that bad because Christ himself worked as a carpenter
2: I gotta remember so we, that yeah. he, he that he yeah, yeah. came and, and picked up a hammer,
6: I like that okay fine.
4: <laughs> The guys here have put that on the, the back of our T-shirts with our logo. I <laughs> so, love it. Yeah, it's really fun. <laughs> so, um, but anyway, the idea here would be that, um, you know, we're really focusing on the the head and the heart and the hands, mm-hmm. you know, whereas most academic institutions really form uh, the, the intellectual life exclusively. Right. And what we're trying to do is we're trying to create a whole, uh, a whole new wave of Catholic laypersons who can get out there and really be leaders in their communities. They can be involved in their parishes, and they can do the things that many people can't do. Right. And uh, there's such a there's such a dearth when it comes to the, the number of tradesmen available in almost every trade. And uh, and we really just thought that would really solve a problem. But it also will make some we'll be able to form some really great people with yeah. this with this method.
2: Yeah. Well, Mike, do you find, because being in education myself, sometimes you find that there is this concept that you really can't connect the trades and a bachelor's degree. Like it's impossible. It's like two different, those are two different kinds of people, but obviously you don't see it that way.
4: No. So I I actually would have completely agreed with that statement uh, a year ago. And Uh when we were forming the curriculum for this, I was really, I really had a hard time with that because I've always been Kind of split between the world of theology and academics, and then I'm also a contractor and builder, and I have been all of my adult life. So, I've I've kind of struggled with this question myself a lot. And then we we first launched this idea and and uh, and really reached a group of students who were you know top of their class, but they didn't really want to go to college unless it was something that was going to be really productive. And, mm-hmm. the, and the, many of them were interested in the trades, and you know. Um, most people are going to college just for um, training to be able to get a good job. And right. the trades, actually, if you look at the, the statistics, if you're a tradesman, you outpace most other bachelor degrees until the age of 55, and for many of them even beyond that. So in terms of being able to make a good living, the trades are a great place to go. Yeah. Now, the trades have often had a bad name because um, – you know, it, you can get a whole gamut of people, you know, across the board to, sure. who would be in the trades. And, and of course, there's some unsavory characters, yeah. <laughs> of course, but they're... In every tra- in every job. <laughs> exactly. I mean, yeah. it's not, like, specific to the trades, but exactly. they do have a bad name. And I think that's something we're trying to transform. And um, I've known a lot of really great, faithful Catholics who are good tradesmen and, uh, you know, who have really wonderful families, and they're great in their parish and the community. And... Those are the kind of people we 're trying to to shape you know in, in, through this this new new approach
2: well in, you know one of the things I like Mike uh, in one of the articles that I read um, you, someone uh, talked about the idea of Catholic craftsmen and that mm-hmm. it, that there is sometimes what you 're trying to create are craftsmen who focus on craftsmanship and not just on the money we make, because our society exactly. is so focused on money. So
4: Absolutely. It,
2: can you explain that to the audience? What does that look like, yeah. a Catholic craftsman?
4: Yeah, well, I actually, through my own experience, I've had uh, the benefit of running a construction business for many years, and I've always really taken a lot of time to help shape and form the character of my, my crew and so we'd have these wonderful lunchtime conversations about theology and philosophy and politics and many of these people were you know graduates from a theology program or philosophy program and they're they're working in construction because there really aren't any theology or philosophy <laughs> jobs where you can support a family yes and so we have these wonderful conversations but it's it's really formative and it's um and i learned that you know these the work that these these men were doing was improved by their understanding of their culture and their uh, character and their, you know, their virtue, as they developed those other things, their craftsmanship also improved. And it was really, I mean, we really had a special time there where we had, um, you know, really fine crew. I mean, that, I have an awesome crew now, and they're, that, these are the guys I'm talking about. They've mm-hmm. kind of developed over the years. And they are really men of, men of virtue, and they're really great craftsmen. And I think the two things go hand in hand. And they always did. If you look back through church history, you know the people who built the the, uh, the great cathedrals. They formed guilds. They would meet right there. They would have mass right there. They would, you know, it was a communal and Catholic thing. Right. And we've really lost that and separated the the faith so much from our daily work, and that's a real disappointment and it's really an unfortunate thing. And I think there's a real call for all of us to renew that wherever we are and whatever job we
5: have.
2: Oh, yeah. And I mean, you know, St. John Paul was very clear about that. He kind of challenged everybody, you know, where are our Catholic writers? Where are our Catholic doctors? Where exactly. are our Catholic, you know, so so the idea that yep. that is supposed to inform uh, what we do in our professional life. So, it, yep. how, uh, Mike, how did you kind of get involved in this whole thing? Because you're the president of the college.
4: <laughs> yeah, so it's, it's kind of funny. I'm, so I, I worked with these other apostolates for many years, and I've been— um, I've always been an avid reader and, you know, I'm very involved in what's going on with the church and things like that. And, and, but I've also been a, a builder really focused on really top-quality craftsmanship, um, mostly working for religious orders and for the dioceses and mm. building, you know, working on churches and things cool. like that. So I've always kind of had these things all connected. And then Jacob Imam, who was the founder of this college, uh, approached me a, several years ago now uh, with the idea, and I thought, well, this is really neat um i i'd like to just i'd love to be involved in some way in a periphery in a periphery way you know and, Yeah. <laughs> and so we um we went up to Harmel Academy in uh, Grand Rapids which is a a trade a catholic trade co- uh, school okay and um and it it was such an inspiring trip and they're doing such great work there that you know we came back home and then these guys had a board meeting and they invited me to become the president and and you know for me it was um very much outside of the direction that i wanted to go with my life uh huh but very much in keeping with the way I have been formed and kind of led you know I feel like I was made for this position yeah um through my my experience and my background and so it was for me it was a no brainer and and for my wife it was just kind of like this is a it's a perfect fit that's it's w- just exactly what I should be doing yeah
2: <laughs> so, oh my gosh that's wonderful yeah.
4: so yeah it's a really great blessing yeah
2: so now you the colleges in Steubenville, doesn't have any affiliation with uh, franciscan university
4: Yes, yeah, so we have a partnership with Francis- Franciscan where we our students will be able to utilize the library at Franciscan, because that's one of our big uh, major overhead expenses would oh. be to uh, try to build a library from yeah. scratch. And so we're, the Franciscan has made a, their library available to us. Oh, good. And we're, we have ongoing conversations about what we can do to work together in the future, but also uh, several Franciscan faculty are going to be teaching for us as adjuncts. And and several of them are involved just, you know, as board members and kind of having direct input with us. So we're, and they're all close friends, you know, all the, the professors up there, are sure. very close friends, and we're all very like-minded. And so it's a really good mix. Um, but this is a trade school, and it's something that, you know, wouldn't fit in a traditional college paradigm, you know. Uh-huh. So we really have to start from scratch because our students are going to be working the second year and thereafter through the whole program. They'll be on a job working. So they're not they're not going to be going to and from class every day into the dining hall they're going to be you know making meals themselves and packing lunches and they're going to the job site and it's it's just a completely different um daily routine and so um you know, that's, that's why we're starting basically from scratch and yeah. kind of in Steubenville, but not connected directly, you know. So And
2: I love that you're in Steubenville because I think that, it, you know, Steubenville it has been hit hard by a lot of yeah. uh, business closures and and factory closures. And so for you guys to be there and be kind of a source of new life and renovation for that city, I yeah. think, is amazing. Now
4: It's I- so exciting. I can't even begin to tell you. It's like there's so many dilapidated building. I mean, there's a real renewal going on in Steubenville. It's astounding. Yeah. But um, we're right in the middle of it, and it's so much fun because there are all these great historic buildings that are just ready to be renovated, and uh, and we're going to build an army to be able to do that. It's going <laughs> to be so much fun.
2: Oh, that will be. Now, is there any um, is there any connection with helping them in entrepreneurship, too, or is it just strictly yeah. trades?
4: Yeah, so that's a big part of our curriculum, actually, is we are trying to train leaders to Go out there and you know, hopefully, start their own businesses or you know work for other people in in other areas. But um, really, the the big focus is how do you how do you start a business? How do you run a business? Um, all of that is included in our curriculum, and and it will be a major focus in the later years of the of the curriculum.
2: Oh, that's great. Because, again, that's one of the things that will certainly bring more renovation into that area. There is yep. so much more I could talk to you about, Mike. But I do want to ask, because one of the things I found really interesting is you said something about, like, they're going to be responsible for the upkeep of their, like, they're going to live in houses. It's owned by the school, yep. and they're going to have to take care of it and all that kind of stuff. Um, How would you come to that idea?
4: Okay. So the the big thing there is that we really want to encourage the students to become adults
5: mm-hmm. and
4: we don't want to perpetuate adolescence. We want them to, you know, with their formation here, we want them to really just take responsibility for what they're doing. So if they're living in a house and somebody throws a football through a window, <laughs> we want them to be able to fix it. And that's going to be part of the training. And, you know, those things are all going to be taken into consideration with the way the housing arrangements are made. Um, but we do, we just want them to take ownership, take responsibility, and um, really be intentional about the way they live. And so that's that's where that comes from.
2: That's wonderful. And I suspect they could go to College of St. Joseph the Worker to get more information?
4: Yep, exactly. College of St. Joseph the Worker, collegeofstjoseph.com.
2: Wonderful. Thanks so much, Mike, for being with us, and God bless your ministry.
4: Thanks very much. God bless. Bye.
0: The Heart of the Interior Life with Elizabeth Jangle
7: St. Ignatius of Loyola encourages us in the sixth rule of his 14 Rules for the Discernment of Spirits to practice much examination when we are experiencing spiritual desolation. We may find ourselves in the struggle of spiritual desolation, uncertain as to how it even began. Practicing much examination is to go within our hearts and ask, when did this desolation begin? Instead of distracting ourselves to avoid the difficulty of going within, Practicing much examination redirects us from diversion and causes us to look at the source of the spiritual desolation. Father Timothy Gallagher writes, The much examination that Ignatius counsels here directly counters such flight into diversion. In the time of the spiritual desolation itself, we interiorly stop and ask, What is happening in my heart? Am I in spiritual desolation? What action will help me to reject it?
0: For more information, visit AveMariaRadio.net. Father Benedict
8: Rochelle. Brothers and sisters, we gotta tell the truth in this country. For heaven's sakes, I wouldn't wanna go to a synagogue and find that they were having a Muslim service. I wouldn't wanna go to a mosque and run into a Baptist service. I don't wanna go to a Baptist church and find out that they're having mass. We've gotta be honest to ourselves. We have gotta be what we are. I'd rather a good old-fashioned, honest agnostic than a phony Christian any day of the week. There are reluctant agnostics, there are atheists who are searching for God, and they may find him. But somebody who says they're doing something in the name of God, in the name of Christ,
0: and God and Christ have nothing to do with it, is violating this commandment. I am the Lord your God. You shall not
9: take my name in vain. The people you know and trust are on EWTN.
10: was a doctor of the church and one of the most famous saints of all time. Matthew Bunsen and the Doctors of the Church. St. Augustine is honored for his immense contributions to theology, but he balanced his genius with humility. He once declared, it was pride that changed angels into devils. It is humility that makes men as angels. He died in 461. For more about the Doctors of the
3: Church, visit doctorsofthechurch.com.
11: The following program is brought to you in part by MyCatholicWill.com. Surveys show that more than half of Americans do not have a will. At MyCatholicWill.com, it takes as little as 15 minutes to write your will and secure a legacy of faith. MyCatholicWill.com is the exclusive online destination for creating a Catholic will. The process of writing a will is simple and now more accessible than ever. MyCatholicWill.com, a legacy of faith for those you love.
12: Maybe you've been hearing a lot about the need to make a spiritual communion while participating from home in a live-streamed or broadcast Mass. By asking for spiritual communion, we are acknowledging that the Holy Mass is the perfect, best way to worship God. The priest intercedes perfectly for us with God the Father because He acts in persona Christi. This is the time to see that through the priest's representation of Christ's sacrifice on Calvary, we are never separated from our Lord. Jesus, I embrace you and unite myself wholly to you.
3: Cresta in the Afternoon is underwritten by the following nonprofit organization, Real Estate for Life. Buying or selling your home or business property? Real Estate for Life can connect you with one of 1,400 pro-life real estate agents around the world. When Real Estate for Life receives a referral fee, they donate 70% to Ave Maria Radio and Human Life International. More information at realestateforlife.org or 877-LIFE-US1. That's realestateforlife.org.
2: Hello, and welcome back to Crest in the Afternoon. I'm your sub today, Pat Odie marie and uh, I'm from Toledo, Ohio, a uh, subbing today. And in this segment, I'm excited. This was something that um, Avi Maria uh, gave me a chance to read and look at, and I, I, boy, I learned so much. We have James Day with us. He is the operations manager at EWTN in Orange County, California. And James is going to be talking to us uh, about an article he wrote, If You Want to peace plant an olive tree welcome james
13: hi pat thank you for having me on
2: well that's uh, it's wonderful to talk to you because like, I, I've i always heard, right, that the you extend an olive branch. It's a sign of peace. But you have so much packed into this article about um, how the connections are. So can you kind of give us, uh, give our audience this idea of what, other than we, we hear this, you know, extend an olive branch, what are all the connections here that we're talking about between peace and the olive tree?
13: Absolutely. Uh, the title, by the way, of the article that appeared in the National Catholic Register as you mentioned, is if you want peace, plant an olive tree, mm-hmm. and that's a play on you know the famous phrase that we hear: "If you want peace, work for justice." Yes. Um, <laughs> so I sort sort of, sort of work. I sort of took that and said, well, a, a pragmatic way. We're, we're living in such a time of war and diaspora and crisis, and it feels like we're always in this endless cycle of, of, of violence yes. and communal, you know, wars right. and infighting. Uh, a pragmatic way that we that we can do if we have the capacity and means is simply to plant an olive tree. I suggest that as a way of uh, visualizing to everybody that we are in this together. I don't think we're hardwired to hate each other, yeah. And this is a way to transform uh, our society to to a peace loving society. So this article talks about that kind of historical and religious significance of the olive tree uh, throughout Scripture, throughout very you know some parts sure. of history that in which the olive tree emerged, uh, historically significant. And, uh, as a takeaway, it's just a pragmatic way of of moving forward because this is a new year, but we are in such, such uh, desperate times, I think.
2: No kidding. And, you know, one of the things, obviously we've been hearing, uh, you know, scripture readings from the book of Samuel, the second Samuel. And I had to kind of, when I'm, when I was listening at mass, all of a sudden I had heard this, you know, uh, that he went up to the Mount of Olives, you know, as Sam, you know, we're talking about David, King David. And I'm thinking, Oh my gosh, you know, this connection between David and Christ and the Mount of Olives and going to the Mount of Olives to pray. And, and it was during this whole time of crisis with his son Absalom. And so I, it's like it fits in so well with what you're talking about in this article. So one of the things that you talk about, and I didn't know this, how long it takes to grow an olive tree. Yes. How, I mean, yes. yeah, tell us about that.
13: Let, let, I'll give a, a great example. Uh, out here in California, you know, of course, the, the spiritual basis of California, the foundation for Catholic California, or the, you know, the missions of, of California, yes. uh, planted by the by the Spanish Franciscans of Unibrosera. Well, there was a tradition that the Franciscans had at each mission. They would plant uh, one, at least one uh, olive tree on the grounds.
5: Mm-hmm.
13: Uh, and this was late 1700s, early 1800s. And mm-hmm. if you still if you visit those locations today, you will see olive trees uh, planted at the time of... Those particular trees are still extant today, so they've you know three hundred years or so wow. uh, about of of these olive trees as a symbol of, of what we're talking about. But they were planting it knowing that they would not see the literally the fruit of these trees right. because of the the, the look. It was meant for the generations of those coming to the missions who would come to appreciate who would sit under those shade, the shade I have a, a three-year-old daughter who, who started climbing trees at a, <laughs> when we would go out for our walks and they were always olive trees because you know, they, they were in our vicinity. So, uh, you know, it was for those down the road, yeah. Uh, to enjoy. And well, and we are still experiencing uh, those trees today, which I think is really beautiful.
2: That is amazing. And one of the things, one of the statements you make, and and I, I want you to, if you can, tease this out a little bit for us. Um, you say that, um, and could you mention in your article, planting olive trees was just one way. Um, Father Junipero and his companions were continuing a long tradition of propagating the faith. So can you help, kind of help us understand how can planting an olive tree help us propagate the faith?
13: We could start by looking biblically, and you mentioned this uh, briefly there with, with with David and the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, there are a good number of olive tree references that are, at, as most as everything with the Old Testament, fulfilled later in Christ. But you can see how um, in in early the Hebrews and in the early Israelites, you know. The, the olive tree was uh, a, a kind of spiritual bastion, of, a symbol of, of their hope, um, and then, again, fulfilled in Christ. Well, mm-hmm. how? Well, specifically, you know, uh, he the Garden of Gethsemane is at the foot of the Mount of Olives. And, um, you know, that's a, a spiritual, significant place for where he undertook his passion, where he prayed, uh, where he was betrayed, um, uh, but so many things happening. There on the Mount of Olives, so he's surrounded by olive trees at this this prime moment in in Christ's life. And uh, now, at the time it was uh, of Jesus, it was very hard to extract the oil from uh, from the olive. Right. So you know they used the uh, a millstone, where crushed the olive in a press, and and here. You know, he references, uh, Jesus references the the millstone, yes, in the gospel, as as, as we know, mm-hmm. and, um, and even in, in the connection between the difficulty of pulling the oil out of, uh, the, the olive, you know, mm-hmm. connects to the difficulty uh, in which he endured his, his passion, the suffering in which he was undergoing, so much so, you know, his sweat became like, like drops of blood, right? Uh, and yet, um, you know for the for the early Israel for the Hebrew this this would have been well known because of its its foundation in, in the Old Testament yeah. whereas the gentile you know would not have known anything about the spiritual significance of the olive tree right. and yet uh and, and yet here in Italy in and then in Italy say for instance mm-hmm. a gentile nation you know converted to Christianity mm-hmm. uh now is one of the greatest producers of olive oil in the world so yeah. it just it just it's just a a, a metaphor if you will right. for just the propagation of the faith
2: and one of the things that I, I found I never knew, and I was so excited when I read it, that Gethsemane actually means olive press in, in Hebrew. I mean, that's yeah. like, oh, wow, you know, th- that idea. And that's why your your explanation of of how we get olive oil, what that olive press does, really does show us um the the analogy of Christ's suffering, what what was put upon him to bring about his salvation for us, the salvation of all of us. It's just an amazing um kind of analogy that I I never saw before until I read this article. That was amazing. Now I, I do have a a question for you because as I was reading Um, You know, you talk about um, the idea of, you know, is it, and I'm just going to quote this for the audience, is it too naive to suggest a joint effort among Christians and Jews, Palestinians and Israelis to plant an olive tree together? Now, here's my question. Um, does, Does this olive tree mean the same thing? To people who are not Jewish or Christian, because that's kind of a part of the scripture that you just went through so nicely for us. But but if that's not my understanding, how do I get drawn into that? Do I have that same understanding?
13: Well, I guess it would depend on the uh, the type of the, what culture we're we're discussing. Uh-huh. Uh, so it probably would have uh, possibly. Maybe not as significant a meaning as the Judeo-Christian understanding of it. Uh, however, in those examples, uh, I would not have written this article for not, or not for the Hamas-Israel war. Right. I mean, that really came out of that that experience and and, and what's going on and what's still going on over there. Um, yeah. But it's specifically that location in which the olive tree flourishes. Mm-hmm. So a a, a a kind of gesture on the parts of those leaders would have ramifications, and for those who may not understand what the olive tree meaning might be, that particular gesture might cause an awakening of understanding, or a new new idea in their own culture, say. Um, You know, for example, uh, cemeteries in Israel, uh, for example, when Yitzhak Rabin, the former prime minister, was assassinated in 1996, and at a cemetery, you know, mm-hmm. uh, Peter Jennings is doing the ABC uh, report covering that that funeral. He's talking about how the olive trees are covering the cemetery wow. and how important that is to the Jewish people. Uh-huh. So that's a way of, of people who may not understand the significance of the olive tree might take that as saying, wow, this is sacred ground, this is the, the Holy Land, and here, why are there so many olive trees here? I think that might be a gesture we might need for for, our, for the new generations to understand the importance of it in this time of diaspora and crisis.
2: Yeah. And I and when you talk about that idea of that the olive tree is certainly a symbol of hope, and it is a part of that, that kind of long growth period that you're talking about, that, that you may not see the fruits of what has been planted, but future generations will. And that fits in so nicely with your article because it's that idea of, even how do we change this animosity, this this hatefulness, the warring? It it has to start with changes now, even in individuals. How individuals are formed, so that in the future we can see peace and hope. Does that make sense?
13: Absolutely. As my as my mother would say, you have to model the faith. You know, picking up my children and you know her grandchildren, you have to model the faith for those. Who are still learning, who are still you know soaking it in
5: who are mm-hmm. still, you know
13: I mean we're always learning, we're always journeying, but for those who have been graced with the gift of faith, you know it's our duty to model that, and so even though we may not see the the fruits of that down the road, but you know I mean, look at all the generations before us who have suffered through the faith of martyrs and persecutions and. You know, they didn't know. You know how. You know, they just had the hope that it would survive, as as Christ said. You know, upon this rock I will build my church. The gates of hell will not prevail
2: against it. Yeah, and I think that again, you know, and you see this in the article, the idea that we are very much a, a, when you plant an olive tree, you can't be thinking of yourself. And I love that. You know, because we certainly are in a culture um, that. Tends to think of ourselves first, and when you plant an olive tree, you can't be thinking about yourselves. You have to be thinking about generations to come.
13: Yeah, yeah exactly. You're, you're, it's not going to be. Like, it's not like a little uh, lemon tree that we have, or uh, or an apple tree that we have, or you know, we're not going to be able to enjoy that. But we do plan. We hope at our house to plant at least two olive trees this year, if Ooh. we can, uh, God willing, uh, if everything comes together there in the front yard. And and I, I just hope that that's a pragmatic way. Of, if to start conversations if anyone asks and maybe not get into too much depth is what we're doing here but at least to have that con- conversation about what the purpose of these olive trees are
2: oh what a great idea because that's a just that's going to help you educate inform people i love it thanks so much james for being with us and talking about your article um if you want peace plant an olive tree
1: The Catechism defines evangelization as the proclamation of Christ and his gospel by word and the testimony of life, in fulfillment of Christ's command. But what does that look like in real life? It looks like the St. Paul Evangelization volunteers out on the street, sharing the good news with people in a non-confrontational way, handing out free sacramentals, listening to them, praying for them, teaching them, planting seeds, and letting the Holy Spirit make them grow. Visit StreetEvangelization.com and learn more so you can get involved in real-life evangelization.
0: This program brought to you in part by the following nonprofit, Christendom College. Looking for a life-changing experience this summer that will strengthen your child's
8: faith and immerse them in a joyful Catholic culture? Well, send them to Christendom College's high school summer program, the Best Week Ever. It's located in the beautiful Shenandoah Valley of Virginia, and the Best Week Ever is one of those gifts that keeps on giving. You can learn
14: more and apply at BestWeekEver.com. Mention Al Cresto when applying. That's BestWeekEver.com.
1: Accidents are the leading cause of life-threatening
14: injuries,
9: but few Americans are prepared. My Life Angels creates your pro-life healthcare durable power of attorney accessible anytime on smartphones, and alerts loved ones if you enter a hospital ER, empowering them to protect you. You can protect yourself and your family. Use code AVE at checkout today, and My Life Angels will donate 35% of your initial membership to Ave Maria Radio. More information at mylifeangels.com.
7: Catholic
15: Connection with Teresa Tomio. How are we treating God? Are we treating Him like a magic wand? a rabbit's foot, only going to Him when we need something. The results, if we don't stay in a relationship with God, and I know this from personal experience, much of the suffering that I had in my life has been brought on by my own stupid mistakes. We have to have God front and center of our life every day. As Father Michael Schmidt says, we're all called to be saints. We have to stand up and fight. We can't just grab God when we need something. He's not a slot machine, putting coins in and pulling the one arm bandit and expecting to win a big prize. We have to have that relationship with God so we can truly do his will and be truly happy. So follow him, not just once in a while, but every single moment.
6: Catholic Connections, Teresa Tomio, Weekdays, 9 a.m. Eastern on EWTN Radio. What does the Eighth Commandment demand of us? The Catholic Catechism says this commandment forbids misrepresenting the truth in our relations with others. This derives from the vocation of holy people to bear witness to their God who is truth and who wills the truth. Offenses against the truth, either by word or deed, are fundamental infidelities to God and thus undermine the foundation of our covenant with him. The Old Testament tells us God is the source of all truth. His word is truth, as is his law. Jesus Christ is the whole of God's truth made manifest. To follow Christ is to live in the spirit of truth, says the Catechism. Jesus taught his disciples the unequivocal nature of truth when he instructed them, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Anything more is from the evil one. This is Peggy Stanton, and this has been the Order of Malta's Minute with the Catechism.
2: Hello, and welcome back to Crusta in the afternoon. I'm sitting in for Al Crusta today. My name's Pat Odie-Murray. Uh, I'm a theology and philosophy instructor at Lords University, and I also host a show called The Virtuous Life on Annunciation Radio in uh, Toledo, Ohio. It's on Mondays at 4. And what, our next guest, who we're still trying, we've got some difficulties trying to get a hold of him here, but he's been on my show, so I know a um, goose Mayrot. let me tell you a little bit about him, and then if we can get him on, um, we, we can just roll. Um, he's the senior editor for Everyman Commentary. He's an English teacher in Dallas and also writes for The Federalist, um, The American Thinker, and other pre- uh, publications. And you can visit uh, the website, EverymanCommentary.com. So, August is, um, he's a prolific writer and he's a teacher. So, I'm sure part of the issue of trying to reach him is who knows, a student may have stopped him or something like that. But the article that we're, I want to talk with him about today is in Crisis Magazine, How Colleges Have Made Themselves Useless. I, obviously, I have a great, um, Interest in these kinds of things, being in academia myself, Uh, but I do think we're seeing challenges as to uh, are colleges doing what they should do or what they're called to do, and that's why, if you were with us in the four o'clock hour, you heard that segment of uh, the College of Saint Joseph uh, uh, of the Worker, the Catholic College of Saint Joseph the Worker. This is an amazing idea. I think we start. We have to start re envisioning. Uh, higher ed a little bit, um, and maybe a lot, not just a little bit A, a goose would say a lot so i 'm going to talk a little bit about this article if they can uh, make contact with him we 'll pick him up and bring him in. But the article really kind of revolves around the idea of cultural relativism and uh, kind of this dissolved objective academic standards and he he says this because of this it's it, It's just made higher ed decline. It, it's an inevitable thing. When you start doing these kinds of things, this is going to happen. When you start to focus on, on relativism, where there's no standards, um, when any kind of objective standards have kind of been put aside, you're going to see a decline. Now, one of the things um, that he talks about, uh, and he shares some other uh, professors' ideas on what's happening To higher ed, and I must admit, kind of what's been rolling around in my head for a while is as we've kind of moved into kind of the modern and now postmodern, and some say we're (laughs) post-postmodern periods. um, We have changed the way we view things, um, view institutions, view the world. But the idea, I think, that that one of the people that he talks about, and I'm trying, oh, Tyler Harper is who he brings up, and he really believes that it is more about kind of a, a utilitarian focus on education. And that is what has made the big change. I must admit, until I read a article, I would have agreed with that. I would have thought, yep, education has just become about getting a job, having a, a profession, getting a job and moving on. It's not about um, the idea of educating the whole person, right? And I'm—I admit this—this this was part of my kind of worldview coming through. Uh, the idea of uh, people were saying, "Well, uh, I'm going to be a nurse, so I'm going to go to nurse's training. I want to be, you know, a teacher, so I'm going to go to a teacher's college, right?" So it was very focused on the profession itself rather than. The holistic view of the individual, and I remember um, I taught at a, a medical college for a while, and um, part of that is um, is the idea that what we always did, because I obviously worked in theology, so part of my issue was I would we would always kind of orient students, and I and another an English professor would talk about what it really meant to be a well-rounded, educated person. And I think we we miss that sometimes. And, I, you know, sometimes... <laughs> don't blame them i mean i saw kids rolling their eyes like you know oh gosh we gotta take we gotta take math we gotta take you know they really were okay with science obviously but you know we gotta take english and we gotta take theology and oh you know it was like these are things we don't need they don't help us now that shows us that we have a real problem (laughs) that we don't understand how these things form us as individuals. So one of the things that Goose talks about in his article is he really thinks the decline of colleges happened in the humanities department, right? And the humanities department would be, oh, kind of what I teach, right? That's humanities. So, but he said he really believes these were kind of hijacked. And they were hijacked in a way that um, you know they they've been captured. What he says is by leftist revolutionaries, and and so they really turn out social activists and not really holistic educated people. Again, I, that's an interesting concept um, to to spend some time with, and 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 I really am curious. Uh, and again, um, uh, we a little issue with having a goose on the show right now, but. I think he he makes a good point that it becomes about uh, the idea of I want to get numbers in my building and if I make kids take a logic, right? Uh philo- intro to philosophy, um if I make them take these kinds of things that make them think, um then I really, you know, they won't come they, if I if they have to take this. So Edu- higher ed has kind of isn't really a lot about we don't focus a lot on education on, anymore we focus more on the experience of college um and uh, my husband uh and i always because he he was an educator also and we always kind of talked about that that you know we went to college to get an education um we very much wanted to learn things now granted he was a music major, a music ed major. Um, I was a, a theology psychology major, but but the ideas were we wanted to learn about what it meant to be a human being, and and music certainly plays into what it means. This idea of beauty, and uh, and certainly for me, the idea of understanding how. Um, who we are as human beings, philosophically, theologically, all of those things play into our worldview. So the idea, maybe, as Agus says, and sometimes I believe too, is that education is no longer about understanding who I am as a human person and how I can be more virtuous and add more to the world around me. It's uh, people, teachers are under pressure to make their classes kind of entertaining and fun and college has to be a fun experience. I've heard of colleges that have put in lazy river um, rafting experiences on their campus because they're they're vying for students instead of saying, boy, we can make you, um, you know, we can help you become who you're called to be. And I think that's even a greater need in our society today. And so Goose talks about this idea that, you know, administrators are trying to uh, attract students any way they can and when that gets to be our focus, um I think we start to lose who we're called to be and what our our mission is about in higher ed when it's all about numbers numbers, numbers right i you know um I always say you teach the truth people people will um people will come uh, in, in a way i and i you can't say that all the time, right? It's not like everybody's going to come running into your college. But, but I always look at, at Christ, right? He is our role model. He is our example. Um, the idea that he starts with 12. He starts with 12, but he speaks the truth. And because he speaks the truth, people who want and are really searching for the truth and want purpose and meaning in their lives and want to know who they are, are drawn to him those who are of the world move with the world right and they they don't you know i mean uh, people listen a lot of people listen to christ and never followed him let's be honest right they they listened to him they heard him speak and oh yeah it sounds like a good guy and they went on their merry way and a lot of people when especially when he did his bread of life discourse left totally and even Peter says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. Peter knew, right? And I think when we talk about higher ed, that's what we need to be about. Where should we go? You have the truth. You can, And this is really true for Catholic higher ed, who we can be for our students. Instead of getting caught up in, um, in the worldly things of giving them fun experiences and classes that are entertaining in the sense of, you know, he makes mention of, of classes where, you know, they, uh, that um, taught classes on Harry Potter and on Twilight, <laughs> okay, uh, you know, kind of uh, current events. Not that that's, you know, not that you cannot tie that into a class, but there's got to be more than that. You know, if you're going to be talking about those things, how do they lead us to the truth? Is there truth there? This is really what we're all about when we talk about these things. And so as, as you know, higher ed, and, and I understand kind of what Augusta is saying here, this idea that, that our college is kind of pushing themselves to a place where they're going to be useless. Because if we're not searching for the truth, if we're not helping students define that, then we're missing the mark. We've just become another service, another commodity that you can buy, that you can you know, it's not all that entertaining, so I'm not gonna I'm not gonna be a part of this. And you know, everything's about customer service. That's a very worldly way to look at it. I think in Catholic Higher Ed, we have the opportunity to look at what it means to build relationships. I I find that with my students, to challenge them to think as I'm teaching bioethics to them. Who is the human person? What does that mean for the way we relate to one another? And then model that myself to expect some responsibility from them on their part and the choices they're making. And also to be a kind person to them. I think that is is so important for us, that this isn't just a commodity that I'm selling you. I am trying to help you understand truth and to build your life on truth so that you will have a good life. Now, Auguste um, also brings up in the article um, the idea of of maybe what do we do with these humanities departments? Um, you know, do, do, you, do we revise them? Um, do we add them to other majors? Do we not have humanities majors? Boy, that's a big discussion, and obviously one that's too much for us to talk about in this segment. I don't think there is just one answer. But I do agree with him that humanities departments need to take a look at what's going on. And are they really about the truth? And even if they're not a Catholic institution, they are still called to teach the truth because the truth can be known through reason. I'm Pat Odie-Murray. I'm setting in for Al Cresta today. Stay with us.
10: Now, Catechism Wisdom with me, Dr. Ray Gurendi, and Father Larry Richards. Father Larry, church talks a lot about charity, right? Let me read you something that the Catechism says, section 2447. The works of mercy are charitable actions by which we come to the aid of our neighbor in his spiritual and bodily necessities. Instructing, advising, consoling, comforting are spiritual works of Mercy. My profession says that we need to have people meet our needs. Now, this here seems to be a little, I don't want to say antagonistic, but maybe contrary to that.
14: The way of the world says me, me, me. The way of God says you, you, you. And when we sit there and we focus on the reality, it's in giving away your life, Jesus says, you find life. That is so anti-world, isn't it? I serve to feel better? Exactly. That, that's where we get everything. It's in giving away your life that you find life. That's the cross. That's the way of Christianity. That's
10: contrary to conventional wisdom.
14: Yeah, and that's the point.
10: <laughs> okay. Well, enough Haven't said there. Yeah, I'm it. sorry. You know, catechism puts things
14: on its head according to conventional wisdom. Absolutely. Jesus comes and changes the world and turns the world upside down and says, you want life, then you give away life. And it's in that that we find true life. It's in serving that we become more fully who we are. As God left heaven, if you will, became a man and gave his life for us. And when we do the same, just as he found eternal life in his humanity, so will we. A life of self is a wasted life. God says, I'll take care of number one. You take care of others. And when you give away and you live a life of service, that's when you're going to find life. So others are number one. You got it. I have a thing that says... uh, Jesus first, others second, yourself last. The life of joy, huh? That's the exact opposite of what the world says, but when you do that, you will have a joyful life.
2: Thanks for being with us this hour. I'm Pat Odie-Murray. I'm setting in for Al Cresta today on Crest in the Afternoon. It's just a great blessing to be here. I uh, host The Virtuous Life for Annunciation Radio in Toledo, Ohio. It's a Monday show, uh, 4 o'clock, an hour long. I love to be able to interview people and and think of uh, get ideas rolling as how we can continue to be about the truth. So I'm anxious, and and for our next hour, uh, we're going to have... Carl Truman with us, who's going to talk about, uh, should Christians attend gay weddings? And then Professor Anthony E. Solon will be with us to talk about the church is not ruled by a plebiscite. And this hour was great great information. We heard about St. Joseph the Worker College, which is a new idea of trades working with Catholic studies. It's a great concept. And also we talked about, if you want peace, plant an olive tree. And we talked about how important that image Is And the reality of it in our society today and why we need it. And then in the last segment, I talked a little bit about Auguste Mayrot's article on have colleges made themselves useless. So thanks so much for being a part of this first hour. And I hope if you're with us, uh, you can stay with us for the second hour. Again, I'm grateful to be here at Ave Maria Studios. I'm Pat Odie-Murray setting in for Al Cresta for Cresta in the Afternoon.
1: from the studios of Ave Maria Radio in Ann Arbor, Michigan, Al Cresta is ready for conversations of consequence. This is Cresta in the Afternoon.
2: Hello, I'm Pat Odie-Murray and I am setting in for Al Cresta, so it's kind of Pat in the afternoon, I guess, um, and uh, no, I could never replace Al Cresta. I listen to him, and he is amazing, um, but it's great to be with you. Uh, I do my own radio show in Toledo, Ohio. It reaches most of the Toledo diocese, uh, and it's called The Virtuous Life. It's a weekly show, and I really enjoy that. I'm blessed to be able to talk to a lot of faithful people and have a lot of uh, kind of information that helps me and my faith, so I hope that's what we're about here for you too today. Um, and Al is on the Good News Marriage Cruise. So I'm sure he and his wife, I think it's Sally, is having a great time, hearing lots of good people. Lots of great people are on that cruise, too. In fact, uh, my boss at Annunciation Radio is on that cruise also. So uh, we're excited for them, and hopefully when Al comes back, he'll be able to fill you in on all kinds of good stuff. I think Teresa Tamio, if I remember, is on that also. So with us, this um, this second hour is very exciting. Uh, We have Um, uh, Carl Truman with us. And he is going to be talking to us about an article he wrote, Should Christians Attend Gay Weddings? So that's going to be in our first segment. And then in the last two segments of this hour, uh, Dr. Anthony E. Solon will be with us. And he just wrote an article for Crisis Magazine called The Church is Not Ruled by a Plebiscite. And there's so much good stuff in there for us to talk about. So I'm really excited about this hour. I hope that you too will be, because these are certainly questions and concerns that uh, if you're Catholic, you're always kind of trying to find the truth, seeking the truth through all of this. And so, again, people here at Ave Maria, uh, Maria Radio have been wonderful to me, so I thank God for them. And we are going to be throwing it now to the news.
3: Thank you, Pat, and good afternoon, everyone. This is your Ave Maria Radio News for Wednesday, January 31st. It's the Feast of St. John Bosco. And today's news is brought to you by Visiting Angels, providing loving care and assistance for seniors in need at visitingangels.com. The French National Assembly has voted to introduce a right to abortion into the French Constitution. The bill received 493 votes of support, with only 30 against, and none of the major political parties in France have spoken out against it. The French Senate will vote on the proposal next month. Pope Francis has revealed his monthly prayer intention. The Pope is inviting others to pray for the terminally ill and their families throughout February. Francis says every sick person has the right to spiritual assistance. He added the families dealing with terminal illness should not be left alone in difficult times. A prisoner exchange between Russia and Ukraine is underway. More than 200 Ukrainian service members were returned in exchange for 195 Russian soldiers, according to officials from both countries. It was the first swap since the fatal Russian military plane crash that the nation said was carrying 65 captured Ukrainian soldiers the Federal Reserve is holding interest rates steady as consumer confidence improves and inflation slows. Fed Chair Jerome Powell told reporters, however, the central bank needs to see more evidence inflation is easing before cutting back rates. He said inflation is still too high and the path forward is uncertain. The Fed is aiming to bring inflation down to 2%. The Fed will meet again in March. And a seemingly innocent question on a Muffet character's social media account is turning into an emotional support group. The ex-account for Elmo wrote on Monday, Just checking in. How is everybody doing? Thousands of followers shared their feelings of depression and anxiety, including many who had just lost their jobs. From the AveMariaRadio.net news desk, I'm Dan
2: McGraw. Hello, and welcome back. Um, I am Pat odie Murray. I am subbing today, sitting in for Al Cresta. Big shoes to fill. Um, he is just an amazing guy, and I'm so thankful that I can uh, be here on the show and kind of help him out a little bit. So this hour has got amazing um, interviews in it. I'm, again, very blessed to do them. Uh, but our first one is... Um, Carl Truman he's a, he's a professor and he's an author most recently of The Rise and Triumph of Modern Self. Cultural Amnesia, Expressive Individualism, and The Road to Sexual Revolution. Uh, A professor of biblical and religious studies at Grove City College and previously served as the William E. Simon Fellow in Religious and Public Life at Princeton University. He's authored or edited more than a dozen other books, including The Creedal Imperative Lutheran Christian Life and Histories and Fallacies, and is a member of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. And today we're going to be talking to him about an article he wrote um, which appeared in First Things called Should Christians Attend Gay Weddings? Welcome, Carl.
9: Uh, thanks very for having me on, Pastor. It's a to be here.
2: Oh my gosh. I just read that article or that book, your most recently published book, and I made a note to myself. Bye. Bye.
8: <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. That's very kind.
2: Well, this <laughs> this article, uh, Carl, is it, it Obviously, the title grabs everybody's attention, right? Can Christians attend gay weddings? But there's so much more in this article than just that. Um, Can you kind of tell me what, you know, why you decided to write about this now?
9: Sure. Well, I think it's a a very pressing question. I think most people uh, either have friends who are gay or have family members who are gay, and it's only a matter of time for many of us before the question of, you know, This gave us. And getting married, should I attend their wedding? It's any amount of time before that pops up. And what I wanted to do in the article was to to help people see what's at issue in that invitation. What would be at issue in attendance? Because on the one hand, nobody wants to gratuitously offend or hurt somebody else.
5: Exactly. Uh,
9: So our instincts are always, I think, for many of us to be to be kind and accommodating. Mm. On the other hand, I think there are there are more issues at play in the question of attending gay weddings than than simply not offending uh, the parties who've invited us. So I I really wanted to try to help Christians in general uh, see what the principles are, what the issues at stake are in in attending a gay wedding.
2: And do you find that um, when you talk about the idea of, you know, usually people who don't agree that a gay marriage is marriage will still go, like you said, because, well, they don't want to upset family members or they don't, you know, they, they they think it's the kind thing to do. What can we weigh that against? Because that seems to be the, you know, the call of the day. Be kind, yeah. be generous, you know.
9: Yeah, and particularly, of course, if it's a relative, it's a, if it's a son or a daughter, for example, oh, yeah. the, the stakes are sort of very high. And I they think are. we need to first of all, understand the, the agony of soul that somebody finds themselves in that position is going to be in. Oh, yeah. But I, I outlined in the article, and there may be more reasons than this, but I outlined in the article what I thought were three things that all Christians need to take account of. Uh, the first is that in many wedding liturgies, not in all of them, but in many wedding liturgies, at some point the, uh, the officiant will ask, If anybody present knows any reason why the couple shouldn't be married.
5: Mm -hmm. And
9: I made the point that that if that question is asked in the liturgy, then really, uh, as a Christian, you're obliged to speak up.
5: Mm -hmm. And
9: and I hazarded a guess that (laughs) speaking up would likely be more offensive and hurtful than than simply not attending at that point. Uh, the second reason, I think, is that the, the, the Christian view of marriage is really predicated on sexual complementarity. Mm-hmm. Uh, marriage is between one man and one woman, and that tracks back to important, morally significant, I think, bodily difference between men and women. If we decide that bodily difference is of no account in our definition of marriage, then really we're, we're taking a huge step towards having no argument against transgenderism, really. Yeah. And the third thing, and I think this is, in some ways, I think the first two are pretty decisive, but the third is the most important, and that is that, you know, when, when Paul talks about marriage between a man and a woman, he ends up talking about Christ and the Church, and that's because, of course, the analog... Of Christ and the Church that we find here on Earth is marriage between a man and a woman. Marriage has Christological significance. Now, I'm a Protestant, you're a Catholic. Mm -hmm. Uh, Protestants typically wouldn't use sacramental language about marriage in a way that Catholics do, but Mm -hmm. I think as Protestants and as Catholics we can all agree that marriage is not just one friendship among others. It has this Christological analogy to Christ and the Church and really what that means is that a false marriage, and I would include uh, a marriage here between two people who've been unbiblically divorced, for Mm -hmm. example, not Mm -hmm. just a a gay thing, but any two people who shouldn't get married. Uh, If if they get married, then they're mocking that analog, and therefore mocking, I think, Christ himself. Uh, And I don't think any Christian would consciously want to be present and approving of any kind of ceremony that, that does that.
2: Yeah. Do you, do you think, because I just read an article in the New York Post um, about, um, I think it was entitled, um, Is Your Relationship Ready for Polyamory? Six Signs That Point to Yes. So it's it's that idea, you know, when we kind of crossed over to, well, of course, two men can get married and two women can get married. Well, then the the number becomes, uh, you know, subjective too. well, who who says two? I mean, why can't it be four? You know, so so one of those one of those kind of progressions is, well, if that's if the world gets to define marriage, then what will you say when four people want to get married? Will you show up? You know, so how do we, how did we kind of get here, I guess, is a good question, as Christians? How did we get to this place that we're struggling with this?
9: I, I think some of it comes down to the fact that behind all of these new, what we we'll call revisions of marriage, lies the idea that marriage is really about the man and the woman being happy. Yeah. That the purpose of marriage is the the personal, psychological, and sexual satisfaction of the contracting parties or the covenanting parties, mm. the man and the woman. Now, certainly, we want couples to be happy. You know, <laughs> don't, don't hear me as saying, you know, no, we want marriage to be miserable. That's, we want the people to be miserable in it. That's right. I, I, I think we we want to say, yep, happiness is, is certainly to be part of it, but the marriage is not primarily for the purpose of happiness.
5: Mm-hmm.
9: Uh, that. The reason why marriage, the reason why, originally, divorce was very, very difficult was, you know, divorce was there was to protect, marriage laws were there to protect children. Right. Uh, And it was to protect the parties involved. Mm -hmm. Once you have no-fault divorce, culture really has shifted towards seeing marriage not so much as something for the protection of children, uh, but as seeing something for the mutual satisfaction of the parties involved. And I think the problem a lot of Christians have is, We've bought into that idea of marriage. And so when we see two guys who want to get married, or, or let's say three guys, or two guys and four girls who want to get married, and, hey, that arrangement makes them all happier, it seems to work for them,
10: mm-hmm. we,
9: we have to take a step back and think, oh, how am I going to object to this? And if your view of marriage is so thin that it's just about a legal arrangement between two people for as long as they're happy... You really don't have a very deep or profound foundation upon which to object. And I think the fact that so many Christians have blithely accepted, say, no-fault divorce leaves us in a very difficult position on a number of fronts relative to objecting to gay marriage or objecting to being present at a gay marriage.
2: Right. Right. And, you know, one of the things that I it, now, we, you know, we always talk about kind of these new things that come by the way. Right. So polyamory is one of them. But now the, another big thing that flies in the face of our definition, the Christian definition of marriage is this whole thing of dinks, you know, double income, no kids. You know yeah. that this is a choice because yeah. kids are. You know, I might have to sacrifice. I might have to yeah. give up something. They're yeah. a lot of trouble. <laughs> you know,
9: they are indeed. I can <laughs> I can vouch for that myself.
2: <laughs> <laughs> but but I mean, isn't that kind of play into what you're talking about when you talk about this idea of marriage is only about my happiness?
9: Absolutely. Uh, I think that it it plays plays into a deeper understanding of what it means to be a human being, that I'm fundamentally autonomous and it's all about me. And other people can come into my lives to the extent that they enhance and enable my happiness. I mean, I would respond to to that in a couple of ways. One, I I was a pastor for a number of years, Mm. and I never premaritally counseled a couple who said this. But I always thought in my mind, if, if I had a young couple in my church come to me for premarital counseling, uh, the, one of the first questions, what it was asked them is, you know, uh, what about the children? And if any of them had ever said to me, well, we're not planning to have children, I think i would have said, you know, well, why do you want to get married?
5: Yeah. <laughs> you know,
9: yeah. The whole purpose of marriage, on one level, is to have children. Now, that's not to say that Old people beyond the age of childbearing shouldn't get married if they love each other. Exactly. Or it's not to say that if you, if you know you can't have children, you shouldn't get married. There are qualifications. Mm-hmm. I'm talking normatively. Right. Uh, the normal situation, the normative situation
5: mm-hmm. uh, uh,
9: should be that. So that would be one of the pushbacks uh, I would give. Do you find... This. And again, this, the second one would be, what is your understanding of of your role as as a spouse, even. Mm. Because it seems to me that, certainly in in the old Church of England vows, you know, for richer, for poorer, for better, for worse, in sickness and in health, the whole purpose there of of being married was was also not what you got out of your partner, but what you could give to your
5: partner, Uh, particularly
9: in their time of need. Mm -hmm. Uh, I was corresponding on text today with a it's actually a Catholic friend, a beloved Catholic friend of mine, who's, uh, whose wife now has dementia. Mm. And just knowing how he's caring for her, yes. it's a real sign. Not only is it an analog of Christ's love for the Church, but it's a real beautiful testimony to what real marriage is. His marriage is not about the pleasure he can get from mm-hmm. his partner. His marriage is about the way he can sacrificially give himself for the good of, of his partner. And I think that's the vision of marriage that Christians really need to have.
2: Yeah, yeah, that's very true. I've got a real quick question for you, as we're coming up close to the end of of the segment here, but I've heard some Christian pastors say, well, you can go to a gay wedding, like if it's your granddaughter or grandson or whatever, um, as long as they know you're opposed to it. Yeah, yeah. uh, How do you answer that?
9: I I think that's... uh, I think your very presence at the wedding indicates your support and minimally, however much you've told them you object to it, Mm -hmm. minimally what you're doing there is saying, my objection doesn't amount to very much at all. So I can understand why a pastor might give that advice, but I think it is fundamentally wrong and misguided.
2: Yeah. Oh, Professor Truman, I could talk to you forever, but thank you for taking the time to be with us today. I greatly appreciate it.
9: Thanks so much. And give my regards to Anthony Asselin as well.
2: Will do. And you're listening to Al Crest in the afternoon. I'm Pat Odie-Murray. I'm setting in for Al today.
7: Catholic Connection
15: with Teresa Tomio. There was a big story about this Catholic college saying, oh, we are going to open our doors to anyone who identifies as a woman. So a male student coming in, but if he calls himself a woman, that's fine. This is all about diversity and equality. This is a Catholic women's college. And so, thanks be to God, there was a lot of pushback. And guess what? The school rescinded. How important it is not to give up and to remember that we can and should respectfully, always with love, express our concerns. It doesn't matter. The victory is up to God. But sometimes we do see that success in the victories, as is the case with St. Mary's College, who says now it needs to go back to its roots and get a deeper understanding of what it means to be a Catholic college for women. Catholic
6: Connections, Teresa Tomio, weekdays, 9 a.m. Eastern, on EWTN Radio. What is truth? Pontius Pilate asked Jesus not realizing that he was looking at truth. Jesus Christ is the truth and the source of all truth. The Catholic Catechism states that man tends by nature toward the truth and that he is obliged to honor and bear witness to it. Thomas Aquinas asserts, Men could not live together if there were not mutual confidence that they were being truthful with one another. Truth entails both honesty and discretion between what ought to be expressed and what ought to be kept secret. Jesus told Pilate that he had come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Thus, the Catechism states, in situations that require witness to the truth of Jesus, a Christian must profess it without equivocation, even at the sacrifice of his own life. This is Peggy Stanton, and this has been the Order of Malta's Minute with the Catechism. The Wisdom of Mother Angelica. I want you to have such confidence in the Lord that you'll find such hope and see the beauty of the Lord, the majesty of God. What did our Lord say, huh? If your sins are as scarlet, oh, what? What's going to happen? They shall be made white as snow.
3: EWTN.
13: Live truth. Live Catholic.
6: We are
0: the pro life generation, passionate about building the culture of life in our healthcare and in our nation. But not all healthcare options are equally pro life, and some provide morally objectionable procedures. CMF Curo is different. CMF Curo is a pro-life Catholic health care ministry providing a pathway for its members to build the culture of life in their health care choices, not destroy it. Learn more about CMF Curo at MyCatholicHealthCare.com. That's MyCatholicHealthCare.com.
11: The following program is brought to you in part by MyCatholicWill.com. Surveys show that more than half of Americans do not have a will. At MyCatholicWill.com, it takes as little as 15 minutes to write your will and secure a legacy of faith. MyCatholicWill.com is the exclusive online destination for creating a Catholic will. The process of writing a will is simple and now more accessible than ever. MyCatholicWill.com, a legacy of faith for those you love. Cresta in
3: the Afternoon is underwritten by the following nonprofit organization. Real Estate for Life. Buying or selling your home or business property? Real Estate for Life can connect you with one of 1,400 pro-life real estate agents around the world. When Real Estate for Life receives a referral fee, they donate 70% to Ave Maria Radio and Human Life International. More information at realestateforlife.org or 877-LIFE-US1. That's realestateforlife.org.
2: Hello and welcome back to Crusta in the Afternoon. As you can tell, I'm not Al Cresta. Those are big shoes to fill. I am Pat Odie-Murray. I I actually have a radio show on Annunciation Radio out of Toledo, Ohio. It hits most of the Toledo diocese, and it's called The Virtuous Life. It's on Mondays at 4 p.m. And uh, it's exciting. I love doing that show. I get to spend an hour with the guest, uh, or sometimes, believe it or not, I talk for an hour. So sometimes I do a commentary for an hour. So that comes in handy, because <laughs> we just found out that my next interview, uh, which I was really looking forward to, Dr. Anthony E. Solon, is sick. Um, And so I'm going to, here we go again, right? I'm going to talk about his article. Um, uh, it, It's in Crisis Magazine, and it's called, The Church is Not Ruled by a, by a Plebiscite. Now, that sounds like a big word, but don't worry about it, okay? It, it is, it basically... If you listen to the byline underneath it, it makes all kinds of sense. And you'll know why I wanted to talk about this. The byline says, Sin does not grow sweet by majority practice. Truth is not altered by a vote. The church is not a political party. I'll tell you, you know, truth is not altered by a vote. I... I just was listening this morning and heard where there were uh some pro-life uh people who had um were sentenced to 11 years in prison for uh being at a clinic and they weren't harassing anyone, they weren't doing any of that, they were praying, they were singing. We are in we're in different times now. Um and as Christians as Catholics, we have to be very vigilant about that, because I think the world wants to pull us in. It wants to pull us into all the confusion that's there, all the division that's there. And that's what Dr. E. Solon is talking about in this article. And in fact, I I want to read you the lead um, paragraph, because I think he sets this up very well. And so let me read it to you. A few weeks ago, I saw in an article in the New York Times the phrase, Pope Francis's agenda for the church. The author approved of that agenda and was no doubt oblivious to the fact that unless we are talking about governance, reform of abuses, and missionary work, an agenda for the church is the last thing a pope should have. That's because the church is not a nation, a business concern, a philanthropic society, or a big social club. Pope Francis himself said so. She is the bride of Christ, and she is to follow him and him alone. Boy, what a great opening paragraph. When you listen to this, the idea... And I think these are the dangers, these are the temptations that we fall into sometimes as church. And and it makes sense. We're surrounded by the world. The world keeps trying to suck us in. It tries to keep telling us do it this way, do it that way, run it like a business. We're not a business. Okay. Now granted, we have to be good stewards, but we're not a business. We don't have shareholders. <laughs> We don't have any of that stuff, right? Um, We're also um, not a a, a nation, right? We're not a nation in the sense that, um, you know, we're passing laws and rules and we're voting on stuff. You don't vote on truth. You don't vote on what's right and wrong. And we're not just a philanthropic society, right? We're not just out there helping the poor for no reason, right? I mean, in the sense that that's our gospel call. It's part of our gospel call, not the only part of the gospel call, all right? And we're not a big social club. Well, yeah, I go to church to see all my friends because I get to visit with them. And no, no, no. This is about the bride of Christ. The church is the bride of Christ, and we follow Christ alone. I think... This is so important. We should never talk about an agenda. The church has an agenda. No, it doesn't have an agenda. It has the gospel. It has the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are called to evangelize. We're not called to have an agenda. Notice we get caught up in the words of the world and we don't understand how sometimes those can be used in ways that complicate and confuse who we are called to be as Catholic Christians. So he goes on to talk about the idea that, you know, Christ, <clears throat> you know, Simeon foretells, right? That Christ will be a, con- a sign of contradiction. He will say things that will cause people to turn away. You know, this sign of contradiction. I'm not I'm not real sure when or how and it's not totally true, but we do have a segment that tries to kind of make Jesus just a warm and fuzzy guy. Like he never challenges us about stuff. Yeah, he loves us. But he loves us so much, he's not going to leave us alone. And by leave us alone, I mean, leave us to sit in our sinfulness, right? He wants us to be better. Oh my gosh, salvation is such an amazing thing for us. And if we don't take seriously his difficult words, if we just focus on all the flower, try to find flowery stuff, and we don't focus on his difficult words, that he is a sign of contradiction, that he has come to cause, cause division, then we're going we're to cooperate in all kinds of worldly things that we shouldn't be cooperating in. We say, well, I want to keep the peace, but that's not true peace. Peace only comes through Jesus Christ. That's why the martyrs could go to their deaths rejoicing and in prayer and at peace because they knew where they were going. I think this is the important thing for us to understand is that whoever said Christianity was going to be easy and the other part of Dr. E. Solon's article talks about how we kind of lose track that we are here for Christ alone, to follow him alone. And we get caught up. And he said, and we're not alone. It happened in Corinth. <laughs> okay. Paul has to kind of straighten him out in Corinth. You know, he says, you know, Paul was accustomed to the strife of the Greek political arena. And he even says, you know, people say, I'm for Paul. I'm for Cephas. I'm for Apollo. Well, no. You can't divide Christ. and And I think sometimes, and that's kind of part of his his article, is that we politicize and we get sides and divisions with, in church, and I like this Pope, no, I like that Pope. no, I want I follow this bishop. No, I don't follow this. But we're all about Christ. And if someone is not about Christ, we don't follow them. And it doesn't matter who they are, <laughs> okay? Christ is who we follow, and our leadership's role is to shepherd us in that following. So Paul admonishes people, you know, and, and we do, I admit, and I, I feel blessed in a sense because um, I've worked in so many different capacities for the Catholic Church over the years that I've traveled a lot, I've been in a lot of different parishes, given a lot of different talks, a lot of different presentations. Everywhere I go, I feel at home. It's the Catholic Church. And I remember when I was blessed to go to Rome with my husband and another friend of ours, I felt at home there, even though I couldn't understand the Mass, the language. But it was was the Mass. I was at home. I was with Christ. So, so, these divisions sometimes even get very parochial, right? I mean, it, the churches are struggling now with lack of vocations. And how do, we, how do we keep all these parishes going? What do we do? And you get people that are like, well, I'll never go to another church. I'm only going to this church. And, and that's good. It's nice that you have loyalty. You know, my, my mom went here, my dad went here, grandpa and grandma went here. That's an amazing thing. And I'm not saying it's not, but we have to remember that we're part of something bigger. I don't follow my parish. I follow Jesus Christ, and I live that out within my parish. But I live that out in the church as a whole, not just my local parish, but in the church as a whole. And so this division that we see in our church We really have to understand that we've got to keep our eyes focused on Christ. And Dr. E. Solon talks about, again, I'm going to share a piece of his article. He talks about that impossibility of division extends beyond the present moment. The eternal word of God cannot be held to say one thing on Monday and it's clear logical contradiction on Tuesday or on a Thursday a thousand years ago or a thousand years hence. Whether you will use your town money to build a playground or a fire station is the kind of thing a plebiscite is for. Not whether it's for the good for children to play or bad for houses to burn down. Truth is not up for a vote. Boy, is that important to understand. Because in the world, we think it is. The world tells us, well, do what everybody else is doing. The majority of the people think this, and if you're not in the majority, I'm really so sorry, but you don't have a voice. That's not what Christ says. Christ called each of us into being he meant for you to be here. He meant for me to be here. There is truth in that. We have a purpose in his image. We have to stay faithful to that. We have to stay faithful to Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life. I'm Pat Odie murray I'm filling in for Al Cresta today.
0: Ave Maria School of Law is the Roman Catholic law school in the United States. Consistently ranked in the Princeton Review as one of the best and most conservative law schools, as well as pre-law's most devout law school. Ave Maria School of Law provides a traditional legal education while emphasizing how the law intersects with the Catholic intellectual tradition and natural law philosophy. Ave Maria School of Law, unabashedly Catholic, consistently excellent. For more information, visit
3: AveMariaLaw.edu. Support for
1: the Ave Maria radio program comes in part by the non-for-profit St. Anthony Services. Are you shopping for mortgage products, Catholic investing, Catholic health, real estate, or estate planning? StAnthonyServices.org can help you find a Catholic professional for these needs. They regularly connect faithful citizens with faith-based professionals that share our Christian values. More information at StAnthonyServices.org or 877-LIFE-US1.
6: 60 on 10 with Monsignor Charles Pope.
14: The first commandment, I am the Lord your God, you shall have no strange gods before me. In this commandment, God seeks to protect us from false claims to our worship and obedience. And there are there's a great sad history of people who have trusted in gods other than him, or things other than him, and the ruin that it has caused. And so God is trying to protect us and call us to an absolute trust and obedience of him. He asks us to trust Him above all things and above all other people or so-called gods. We have to also avoid things like consulting horoscopes, palm reading, clairvoyance, recourse to mediums, any desire to try to control things apart from God. God simply says, trust me, I am the Lord your God. The first commandment, I am the Lord your God. You shall have no strange gods before
2: me. For more about the Ten Commandments, visit EWTNRC.com.
3: It's time for Family Man with Dr. Gregory Popchuk. Does your family make regular time to work, play, talk, and pray together every day? Research shows that when Catholic families create strong, consistent daily rituals for working, playing, talking, and praying together, they set the stage for teaching their kids Christian attitudes toward work, leisure, relationships, and faith. If it's true that values are more caught than taught, family rituals are what makes a Christian worldview truly contagious. That's why the Rite of Family Rituals is such an important part of the Liturgy of Domestic Church Life. It helps families come together as strong domestic churches and learn what it means to be intentional disciples at home and in the world. To discover more ways your family can celebrate the Liturgy of Domestic Church Life, check out the newest editions of Parenting with Grace and visit CatholicCounselors.com. I'm Dr. Greg Popchak, but you can call me Family Man.
11: To discover more ways faith can enrich your life, visit CatholicCounselors.com.
2: Welcome back to Crust in the Afternoon. Um, As you can tell, I'm not Al Cresta. I am Pat Odie-Murray. I have a radio show with Annunciation Radio in Toledo, Ohio. It covers kind of the Toledo Diocese, most of it. And it's called The Virtuous Life. So I am blessed to be able to sub- Uh, today for Al Cresta. And I'll tell you, these people at Ave Maria Radio are amazing. They have been so wonderful to me. So it's great to be back. And I really want to thank our next guest because we actually had Dr. Um, Anthony E. Solon lined up for two segments to talk to us about his article that I talked a little bit about last segment. Uh, But he's sick, the poor guy. So keep him in your prayers. Um, He's a great man and we want to keep him healthy so he can continue to share his wisdom with us but I really want to thank the person who stepped in at the last minute Uh, let me tell you who's with us Michael J. New is an assistant professor of practice at the Bush School of Business at the Catholic University of America a senior associate scholar at the Charlotte Lozier Institute and a Paige Comstock Cunningham fellow at Americans United for Life welcome Michael thanks for being on with us
8: Uh, Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Much appreciated.
2: Oh, that's okay. And you are a blessing for Pitch hitting. And this is a great topic because we're going to be talking about an article that was in uh, the National Catholic Register, U.S. Supreme Court to Hear Major Abortion Pill Case in March. And if I'm not mistaken, that's uh, going to be March 26th. Can you fill us in a little bit about this?
8: Uh, sure. That uh, the Supreme Court actually announced in December uh, they'd hear the case, and they set aside the March 26th date for the oral arguments. Uh, this is a litigation that's been going on for quite some time. Okay. The good folks at Alliance Defending Freedom have sued about the whole legality of chemical abortion pills. Okay. They have argued, I would say reasonably, uh, that the chemical abortion pill should, never, should have never been approved by the FDA in 2000. Mm -hmm. Uh, This was rushed by the Clinton administration. They put through on a track that should have been used for life-saving drugs Uh, in general. uh, Pregnancy is not a life-threatening condition. So there's real serious questions about the legality of the approval of RU46. Now, sadly, the legality of RU46 is not what's being litigated, Right. but what is being litigated is some policy changes that have occurred since 2016. Uh, starting in 2016, it was possible for women up to 10 weeks gestation uh, to obtain chemical abortion pills. Previously, it was only eight weeks. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would say even more importantly, uh, during the pandemic, it was possible for pregnant women to obtain the chemical abortion pill without in-person medical exam. Wow. Um, yeah. yeah. And what's even worse is the Biden administration continued that policy uh, even after the pandemic. So, you know, they kind of extended that covid era policy mm-hmm. afterwards. Uh, even though, you know, the public health justification, you know, had obviously changed. So, you know, that's kind of what's being uh, litigated uh, right now. So uh, it's kind of these policy changes about, you know, time of gestation. And again, you know, can it be obtained without an in-person medical exam? And again, I think the Biden administration's decision was just, you know, very, very poor uh, mm-hmm. public health. You know, if a woman uh, has a of pregnancy and she obtains chemical abortion, um, you know, that could be fatal. If she's further on the gestation, she realizes it's a chemical abortion pill that could have negative health consequences. Right. So, um, you know, again, I think that this is you know a good lawsuit. Uh, we should hope and pray for the lawyers who are, you know, making the case. Uh, it'd be great if we could just take these pills off the market, but if we can, you know, reduce their availability, uh, that would still be a step in the right direction.
2: Yeah, no kidding. So it, the idea here is that. They thought the FDA kind of rushed it through, right? That, that, that was right. one of them, that they kind of, right. FDA kind of rushed it for, through. They didn't do the proper testing. Boy, that seems to be a, a MO for them lately. Um, so they didn't do proper testing when it was approved. Um, and so, but now we're finding, aren't we, that like people are getting these through the mail,
8: Right. That's a whole other kind of issue. I don't think that's being litigated directly, but, you know, obviously one concern for pro lifers is that women in states that have enacted strong pro life laws, uh, they can go online and sometimes order these pills to the mail. And there are pro life legal experts that, you know, need to kind of weigh in on this. Uh, There are some people who think we can use, you know, the old Comstock Acts, which prohibited, you know, pornographic and other sexually oriented materials from being sent to the mail. That might be a strategy to stop these chemical abortion pills from being sent overseas. Okay. I think that's another issue. I sure. don't think that's really being litigated here, right. but certainly something that we need to be well aware of as as pro-lifers.
2: Right. So, okay. So they're they're saying that um, a part of the change is gestation time period. Right. So mm-hmm. yeah. so the idea is is what what are they litigating What's the pro-life side litigating for? What do they want to see occur with gestation time period?
8: Well, what's actually being litigated is that, you know, I think we want to move back to eight weeks. Uh, FDA changed the policy, moved to 10 weeks. Uh, Our, uh, you know, I don't think that was done, you know, with, you know, proper evaluation, you know, proper metrics, you know, I'm not expert on every last detail, but, you know, anytime there's a policy change, there needs to be some kind of evaluation, you know, was it safe? Was this, you know, a proper way, a proper change that would protect public health? And we don't think that was the case. So the Litigation, one aspect is moving the gestational age back to eight weeks.
2: Okay, so it, the other thing, too, is that um, they can get it through telemedicine. So, mm-hmm. so they don't have to see a doctor in order mm-hmm. t- to get this. And, and if, if I'm looking at the article correctly, it says um, in 2021, the FDA decided that the in-person requirement put a burden on the health care delivery system. What is that about?
8: Well, I mean, especially <laughs> with the COVID pandemic, um, you know, oh. people sleep, you know, want to go to a physician and, you know, have face-to-face meetings. So lots of things, you know, went sure. online. Sure. There are some medical things that, you know, you can have an you know, online diagnosis or at least get an online consultation that, you know, that's at least reasonable. Right. A situation like this, you know, I get, yeah, you know, I think that this is obviously a, a Contains serious health risks. Right. Uh, that, again, a woman is further on gestation than she realizes. But. Chemical abortion, negative health consequences. You need an in person kind of diagnosis or, you know, appearance to kind of ascertain that. So right. there are certain things you can do through telemedicine, but in my opinion, this is not one of them.
2: Right. So, so you're, I mean, I understand that during the, during, I guess I wasn't even thinking, I'm kind of blocked out that whole COVID time period, but um, that. I <laughs> <laughs> that that okay. So the FDA said this in 2021 because of the pandemic. But that's a permanent thing now. The pandemic's over. So, but it's still a. Per, no, it's, it wasn't a limited thing that they could get it through telemarket well, or through telemedicine. Well, it was supposed to be limited, but the Biden administration FDA extended
8: it. After the pandemic. Now, there's a possibility if we elect a pro-life president in 2024, uh, his FDA could change that. And that's what we would hope and pray would happen. Okay. Uh, It was just kind of an administrative decision by the Biden administration to extend this COVID-era policy.
2: Okay. So they're the ones who made it uh, kind of, I don't want to say permanent, but extended it past what the normal kind of uh, telemedicine was was occurring during the the pandemic time. But in, now the interesting thing though is I I find it interesting that they've extended it and I suspect they're using the same argument, right? The the burden uh, because of the burden on the healthcare delivery system, but yet people who are just on regular prescriptions um you know can't call in and and just you know go pick them up they have to see their doctor
8: yeah i mean very often for a lot of prescriptions you do need an in-person exam i think that's fairly conventional in most cases doctors don't write prescriptions willy-nilly and they're afraid that prescription drugs in some cases you know might well be abused in some cases sure so again they're you know very careful about that
2: so why would this one be treated differently then
8: because abortion is always treated differently. I, mean, I hate to say it, but for our <laughs> opponents, it's a sacrament. And, uh, you know, nothing should stand in the way of abortion access. Not common sense, not good public health. You know, they've really prioritized making abortion policy more permissive. Uh, they'll do whatever they can within the boundaries of the law, even outside the boundaries of the law. This is just another, you know, stop to Planned Parenthood and a stop to, uh, you know, their friends in the abortion industry.
2: Yeah. So are you finding. Um you know, you said these are high risk drugs, and can you kind of like why? Well, obviously, we—that's not promote. People aren't told that because, like you said, abortion is treated so much differently. But what, when you say these are high risk drugs, what are you talking about?
8: Well, I'm just saying that you know there's non-trivial um, chance of. Uh, you know, hospitalization or, you know, even death. I mean, I think the FDA has found that over 20 women have died Mm -hmm. since the chemical abortion pill was approved in 2000. Uh, Multiple studies using copies of health registries find the complication rate from chemical abortions is four times higher than that of surgical abortions. Mm -hmm. So, um, again, you know, uh, the FDA has tracked the hospitalizations, adverse effects You know, these numbers in the hundreds and the thousands, uh, you know, the health risks are not negligible. You know, there is a right. real health risk that does require, you know, medical supervision. And if these pills are being taken without an exam, uh, those risks are heightened.
2: Right. And it really seems for um, for a group that uh, is all concerned about women's reproductive health rights, <laughs> um, you really should be concerned about women's reproductive health. Um, you know, the, the idea here is this really isn't healthy in in the least uh, for women. Uh, And and I think part of it is, you know, if you're going to let them get these prescriptions through telemedicine uh, and they do have some terrible reaction, I think the stats I read was like roughly 1 in 25 will end up in the emergency room. uh, It would be good that a doctor knows what's going on with them.
8: Yep, absolutely. I mean, the risks are negligible. This is the FDA's own statistics, and they're probably undercounted. I mean, I think a lot of women who, yeah. you know, do suffer, uh, you know, the hospitals will cite something else. Right. Uh, I think the official statistics are probably, you know, an undercount.
2: Yeah, I think you're right. Well, so what what are you expecting with this Supreme Court decision? Do you have any expectations at this point? You know, I don't like to make predictions.
8: Uh, <laughs> the one prediction I make is that people make predictions, get egg <laughs> on their face. So, but I will say that there's reasons for optimism. I mean, okay. we do have a situation where there were five judges who did vote to overturn Roe v Wade mm-hmm. and a sixth judge John Roberts that would have voted to at least uphold that pro Mississippi law that was under consideration in Dobbs so based on the you know composition of the court, I think there's reasons for optimism. Again, the court can be unpredictable, yes. you know, I don't like to, oh, yeah. you know, put all my eggs in that basket, but I think there's reasons for, for optimism.
2: Oh, I certainly understand that. Do you think, though, that um, that the case that's being made on behalf of, of all these points that the pro-life movement is saying, you know, is unhealthy for women, uh, you know, all these points that you've pointed out, gestation, uh, do you think the case is solid in those areas?
8: I think it is very solid. I mean, I've read the legal briefs that, you know, Alliance Defending Freedom filed. I think that's something many in the mainstream media have not done. I think that our friends in the mainstream media have tried to dismiss this lawsuit as just being, you know, by and large kind of, you know, frivolous. Uh, But it's very detailed. I mean, they do explain FDA rules to drug approval. You know, they do explain how these rules are violated when RE46 was in fact approved. So I think it is a very solid case. Uh, I just hope the judges find uh, the arguments uh, persuasive.
2: Yeah. Is there anything like that? Just I know it's going before the Supreme Court. It's not like it's going to our legislatures. But is, the, is there anything that we can do um, to raise the awareness of this court case? And, and, and would it make a difference, I guess? You
8: know, I mean, first, I always encourage you to pray. Sure. You know, very powerful. You know, I think, obviously, the day of oral arguments, I expect there to be you know demonstrations out there. I think just the optics of having pro-life people in front of the court in large numbers looks good. Mm-hmm. I was there uh, when we had the oral arguments at Dobbs, and it was one of the first times in my life I thought the pro-life people actually outnumbered our opponents in front of the court. I mean, I don't think that sways the judges, but just the optics of you know, strong pro-life stuff it looks good, so that's what I would suggest.
2: Okay, well, Mike, th- thanks for stepping in at the last minute and being on to share this with us and we definitely will pray so that uh, this is uh, this case is decided in our favor. You're listening to Crest in the afternoon I'm subbing for him I'm Pat Odie Murray.
10: Dr. Ray Gurendi what's the definition of frustration? Frustration is the difference between the way it is and the way you want it to be. It's hard to change the way it is. The way it is sometimes is other people, life, circumstances. The way you want it to be is in your power to change. You can close the gap between reality and what you want. The smaller that gap, the less your frustration. It is always easier to change oneself than to change reality. Frustration isn't always what happens out there. It is how we look at what happens out there.
12: Christ is the Answer with Father John Ricardo. He always starts with the good things. You know, the seven letters to the churches and the book of Revelation is a great way to write letters to other people, by the way, or to have conversations with other people. You start with what's going well. You do this, this, and this really well. I love it. Thank you. Here's what you're lacking. And I think for many of us as men, what the Lord's communicating at that second part of the letter or the second part of the conversation is, here's what we're lacking. You don't ever spend enough time with me. You have no idea what I'm trying to offer you in the gift of my friendship, or if you do, you don't make time for it. And if you would but come to me, I would change your life like that. But you don't come, not with the regularity that I want you to come, not with the ardor and the fervor and the passion that I want you to come. I have a hunch, like more than a hunch, that's what he says to me. And I got a hunch that's what he would say to many of us.
2: welcome back to Alcrest in the afternoon as we close out this hour. It certainly has been an interesting day. Um, We had uh, Dr. Anthony Solon, who was sick and couldn't be with us uh, but we had uh, uh, Mike Newell uh, come in and and talk to us about uh, the abortion uh, law before the Supreme Court right now um, about the RU-486. So it gave us some great information that we need and again I just want to thank everybody here at Ave Maria Radio. They have been Wonderful, and it has been just a blessing for me to be able to um, sit in the chair of Al Cresta. I can, I can feel, um, you know, the spirit of God around me. Uh, he is just an amazing man. He does a wonderful show, and uh, I am blessed to be able to be a part of this today. So, thanks again. I'm Pat odie Murray. You can listen to me on Annunciation Radio, The Virtuous Life. The Have the a afternoon.
1: good week. This is a co-production of Ave Maria Radio and EWT and carried across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. To follow up on any of the guests or information presented on today's program, visit the Cresta Guest Archive at AveMariaRadio.net. That's A-V-E-M-A-R-I-A Radio.net. To listen to this or any other edition of Cresta in the Afternoon, visit the audio archives at AveMariaRadio.net. Or to order a CD of the program, call 734-930-4506 or email orders at avemariaradio.net. That's 734-930-4506 or orders at avemariaradio.net.